Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is my first attempt to mix up the programming. In addition to doing the usual interviews, I want to start doing some other forms of audio work, short reports and documentaries about the Eurasian region. On July 7th, Ivan Gulunov, an investigative reporter from Medusa, was arrested on trumped-up drug possession and distribution charges. Gulunov has published several meticulously detailed investigations on corruption in Russia. The story that got him arrested was on connections between the FSB and Moscow's funeral business. By July 16th, that story had been read an estimated 2.6 million times. Gulunov's arrest produced an unprecedented outcry from Russia's cultural elite, leading miraculously to his release six days later on July 11th. This is what Maxim Trudelubov told me about the meaning of the Gulunov case. Basically, the, the, the significance of the case is enormous because it elevated the role of an, of an investigating journalist, essentially. As a result of, of all the hoopla, all the scandal, the very fact that he was released. Of course, it's a message, it's a signal, and uh, all the players will interpret it uh, the way they, you know, to the extent of their understanding, because, of course, nobody will issue a document that would say, from now on, you know, you have to respect, <laughs> this never happens. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of an uh, un, unwritten law by now that kind of says that if it's a professional media and there is a, an investigative reporter who is doing his job decently, uh, of which Ivan Golnov is like prime prime example. If you have a, a journalist like this, uh, they're kind of almost untouchable now, or at least it seems that way. To spread the word about Gulenov's work, Medusa opened up all his articles to open access. I decided to make an audio version of one of his investigations into microfinancing scams to do my small part in that effort. So here's the evictors. Around Moscow, there's a whole industry of so-called black creditors, microfinance institutions, or MFOs, that swindle and seize debtors' homes. Ivan Gulenov's investigation for Medusa has discovered that almost 500 apartments have been seized from their owners over the past five years, without so much as a court order. In fact, this scheme involves more than simply squeezing people from their homes. It is possibly part of a wider, international money laundering system. Here's Medusa special correspondent Ivan Gulenov on the ins and outs of this industry. In the summer of 2015, doctors diagnosed Natalia Smelinskaya with cancer, 
Government assistance and her salary didn't cover her medical costs. So she took out a loan, 2.7 million rubles, or roughly $41,400, at a three-year, 36% annual interest rate from Solvcom Bank. Her loan payments were 80,000 rubles, or $1,200 a month. The surgery was a success. Natalia made her payments on time, but the high interest rate was a heavy burden. A colleague encouraged her to refinance, and she did with a company called Loan Center 365 at a slightly more manageable 28%. The catch? She had to put up her four-bedroom apartment as collateral. According to Natalia, the Loan Center staff acted weirdly when it came time to sign her refinancing agreement. She says they hurried when she tried to read the paperwork. At one point, the manager pulled a sheet from the stack of documents and said there'd been an error. Then she reprinted the page and asked Natalia to sign it again. For the next six months, Natalia paid regular $1,200 installments on time. One month, however, her job paid her late and she was a few days overdue with her loan payment. On the night of December 26, 2016, Natalia got an unexpected visitor. Anton Titov, an employee at Loan Center 365, came to inform her that because of the late payment, the company now owned her apartment. Titov quickly reassured her, however, that she could remain in the home while repaying her loan. All Natalia needed to do was sign a renter's agreement with Loan Center 365. Natalia tried to call Loan Center 365, but nobody answered. Even her employer tried to repay her loan on her behalf, but the money bounced back from Loan Center 365's bank account. In February 2017, Loan Center 365 sold Smelinskaya's apartment. That August, she lost the lawsuit challenging her family's eviction. In December 2018, police came to Smelinskaya's home to evict her family. After Natalia's family's eviction, the home was sealed, with all their belongings still inside. A few days later, on a visit to her neighbors, she noticed that the seal on the door was broken, and there were sounds coming from her apartment, as if someone was smashing the furniture. Police officers arrested several men who claimed that they were helping to haul away what was left inside the home. Today, Smelinskaya's apartment is again sealed, and the local police have opened a fraud investigation into Lone Center 365. Part 1. How Shady Credit Schemes Work Lone Center 365 isn't the only creditor driving people from their homes. Medusa managed to find several dozen similar companies. According to Medusa's calculations, creditors like Loan Center 365 have managed to evict at least 500 families throughout the Moscow area. The victim stories are virtually identical. When signing the home equity loan, the client signs over their apartment as collateral or reaches a sale and purchase agreement. Borrowers are told that it's like a mortgage. The bank holds the apartment as collateral until the loan is repaid. In a bank mortgage, however, the property can only be seized by court order after overdue payments and visits by collectors. The home is then auctioned off to the highest bidder. In loans for micro-creditors, victims sign over power of attorney and agree to other conditions that can be used to seize their property without a court order. 
transferring their apartment to an intermediary and leaving the clients with nothing. Well, these are loan sharks, essentially. This is Maxime Trudeau-Lubov, author of The Tragedy of Property, Private Life, Ownership, and the Russian State. Maxime says that these fraudulent lenders exploit loopholes in Russia's laws to swindle people out of their homes. Because legally, uh, if you read the Russian constitution, the, it's really a fine document. And <laughs> private property is well protected. It says, uh, the constitution says that you cannot take pri private property away from a person without a court uh, ruling and without a proper compensation if it's um, things like, I don't know, eminent domain kind of case. So what they do, they give people papers to sign and uh, essentially people waiver their right uh, of owning the apartment before they even take the money. So it's not like a bank where you, uh, yes, you do give uh, your uh, property as collateral, but then if you fail on your payments, uh, there is a process uh, and it, it would involve a court ruling in the end and, and a foreclosure, etc., etc., everywhere, just like in the States. I'm sure it, it's easier in Russia still. It's uh, still, uh, the rights are protected. I mean, the, all the laws are there, so in place. So if, if you deal with a normal bank, you cannot uh, lose your property that easy. In fact, very often people don't lose their apartments even against, uh, you know, their, their all kinds of liabilities that they have. The victims of predatory lenders rarely manage to get their homes back. In one case, a debtor produced a schizophrenia diagnosis, causing the judge to annul his microfinance agreement. The people who are taking out the credit are told that this is almost like mortgage, or just a mortgage. But, but sometimes they call it leasing. So the apartment is in banks in lease until the credit is uh, repaid in full. But the scheme is different from the normal mortgage because during the process, during the very first moment when people sign in to this scheme, the victims sign some kind of a trust document that essentially transfers the property right to the provider of, of, of the credit. That's why the apartment can change hands without a court ruling, which is a direct contradiction to the Russian constitution. Even clients who are delinquent on loan repayments can lose their homes. When Svetlana Podelskaya's summer cottage burned down, her children promised to help with the reconstruction costs. But she decided to go at it alone and turned to the International Credit Bureau, or MKB, for a 600,000 ruble or $9,100 loan. She put down her apartment as collateral. Podelskaya made all her payments on time, and after 18 months, MKB's manager informed her that she was getting a two-month credit holiday as a reward for being a good borrower. So Podelskaya skipped her next two payments. Not long after, a man showed up at her doorstep introducing himself as the apartment's new owner. When she confronted MKB, the manager denied ever calling her. She had no paperwork to prove the credit holiday offer. According to her loan agreement, Podolskaya forfeited her apartment if she fell behind at least two months in her payments. Several other MKB clients have reported similar incidents.
Badelskaya's apartment was sold to an unemployed man named Denis Baluev. In court, Baluev was asked to name the source of the money he used to buy the home. After resisting the request, he finally produced a supplemental agreement to a loan contract from the microfinance company Capital Loans. The agreement doesn't specify the loan amount. And the interest rate was an unusually low 14%. Capital Loans is managed by a Latvian national named Ivan Dubin. Dubin also works at the International Credit Bureau. Latvian nationals make up all three of Capital Loans' founders. Of all the predatory lenders in Moscow offering home equity loans, the International Credit Bureau has the highest number of victims, according to Medusa's investigation. Former clients named 99 instances where the company's borrowers lost their homes. The elderly and other vulnerable people make up their main clientele. Uh, I think the central bank, who is supposedly the agency responsible for regulating them, I think they're aware of this by now, and they're working on it. They, they, they're doing some kind of special law that would prevent these guys from operating. But basically, yes, these are, these are real you know, fraudulent loan sharks that prey on older people, on uh, people who are socially sort of uh, depraved or alone, uh, and they're very good psychologists in a way because they know who would be a good prey for them. Credit managers are also known to try to drive a wedge between potential clients and their relatives. Svetlana Podelskaya recalls how MKB managers advised her not to tell her children about her loan. Podelskaya's sons only learned about the loan when the neighbors called them to say that representatives of the new owner were removing the apartment's front door. Often, relatives don't find out an apartment has been signed over as collateral because microfinance organizations don't register these contracts with Russia's Federal Agency for State Registration. The actor Sergei Frolov, whose story made headlines in March 2019, learned about his mother's home equity loan several years after her death when he learned the apartment he inherited had been sold at auction. Frolov's mother had borrowed $9,215 at a 28% interest rate from MKB. Her pension wasn't enough to cover the monthly payments. Her loan paperwork, however, contained an income statement that significantly exceeded her retirement earnings. When she couldn't make her payments, MKB convinced her to accept an additional $18,445 loan secured on her apartment. When she died, MKB seized her home to cover her unpaid debt. Maxim Trudelubov says microlenders call apartments collateral, but in reality, borrowers are signing over their rights of ownership. They call it a collateral, yes. When they talk to the person, when they sell them product, yes, they say that this is a collateral. But essentially, what they give people is a paperwork that essentially transfers the property rights to the agency, to this uh, firm that is providing the credit. Part 2. What's Latvia got to do with it? In February 2018, the U.S. Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, announced plans to levy sanctions against Latvia's ABLV Bank, one of the three biggest Latvian creditors. FinCEN accused ABLV of money laundering, 
aiding North Korea's nuclear program, illegal actions in Azerbaijan, Russia, and Ukraine, and its executives of paying bribes to Latvian state officials. And Latvia is notorious uh, place for uh, all kinds of companies for you know laundering, money laundering uh, schemes. So the the firms they may may be part of an ecosystem of money laundering. One of the key elements of any money laundering system, and I should say that you know for all the different laundromats OCCRP has uncovered. Uh, we can't always show that the entirety of the money that passed through those systems was money laundering. You know? Ilya Lazovsky, a writer and editor with the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, worked on the Troika laundromat investigation, which detailed the international networks to launder money out of Russia. He says companies take deliberate steps to obscure transactions and send them to offshore companies and secret bank accounts. The way we found that, l- that the Baltics are often used is that a lot of the offshore companies that are used to channel money out of Russia and around the world uh, hold bank accounts in the Baltics, in particular at various banks in Latvia. And that is because it's Europe, you know, so once you get the money into a European bank, it's easier to move it onward into the Western financial world because it's sort of seen as cleaner and it's not just directly coming out of somewhere in Moscow. But at the same time, it's pretty clear that a lot of the controls on money laundering and, you know, know your client regulations and those kind of things in the Baltics in general are not what they could be. So it's sort of a vulnerable point into which this money can go. A week after the U.S. Treasury's announcement, ABLV began liquidation procedures. While the Latvian authorities ordered the bank to reduce its share of non-resident clients, According to regulators, offshore companies manage 36.7% of all banking operations in Latvia. Offshores are responsible for 44.5% of transactions involving non-residents' accounts. Latvian banks also play an important part in schemes to move money out of Russia. In their laundromat investigative report, journalists at Novaya Gazeta and OCCRP found that Latvian banks withdrew more than $18 billion from Russia over the last three years. Russians unable to open accounts in Scandinavia and other more prestigious regions make up most of these banks' clients. One of the banks hit hardest by the new restrictions on non-resident accounts was Rietumu. Its assets plummeted by 46.3%, or $1.6 billion in the first nine months. Latvia's fifth largest bank, Rietumu, was founded in 1992 by Leonid Esterkin and his brother-in-law, Arkady Sukarenko. Sergei Malikov is the founder of the microfinance company Matex Credit, later renamed West Credit, and has issued home equity loans in Latvia since 1995. Rietimu Bank is Malikov's main credit investor, with a $31.6 million line of credit opened in 2008. Rietamu then loaned Matex Credit an additional $9 million in 2011, as well as another $27 million in 2016. Like in Russia, Matex Credit has also been embroiled in scandals involving the forceful eviction of debtors in Latvia. In one case, Matex hired a security company to clean a residence. Staff broke into a pregnant woman's home and pepper sprayed her. In another incident, staff dismantled a home's window and front door to evict the residents. By the late 2000s, 
Matek's credit had lost its reputation. Consumer rights officials opened an investigation into the company, and the Latvian government introduced tougher regulations on credit financing. Those are all sort of warning signs for money laundering or some other you know, illicit financial transactions. And different banks have different standards of how seriously they investigate these things, and it, largely it depends on jurisdiction. So we find that a lot of these systems use um, Baltic banks, and we talked about Latvia, but in our most recent investigation, the Troika laundromat, which consisted of a system of about at least 70 or 75 offshore companies that were formed this giant network that send money into the network from Russia. It gets you know chopped up and split and set, set all among the different companies of the network, and then it gets spit out the other end into whatever, Western real estate or investments or whatever else. And almost, I think almost all, if not all of those offshore companies that were part of the laundromat held bank accounts at a single Lithuanian bank. In 2011, Melikov and two other Latvian nationals created a new company in Russia, the International Credit Bureau, MKB, the same firm that issues shady home equity loans to Moscovites. One of MKB co-founders was Addis Anspoks, who a decade prior ran an advocacy group in Riga called For a Latvian Society Without Homosexuals. In this group, Anspoks volunteered alongside Andris Baumanis, a lawyer the Latvian police suspect of bribing judges. The first Russian apartments MKB seized were transferred to Malikov's personal property. He immediately signed them over to Rietamu Bank as collateral for a $750,000 personal loan. In 2013, Rietamu opened a $22.6 million line of credit to the Russian company International Credit Bureau, according to documents obtained by Medusa. Rietamu Bank did not respond to Medusa's questions. The whole point is that if you are someone in a country like Russia, maybe an organ, you know, member of a criminal group or a corrupt official or both, as the case may be, once you've stolen your millions from whatever the scheme is, you want to put it somewhere where it's not going to be taken from you in return. That's the whole point of the money laundering. You've got to clean it up and disguise its illicit origins and get it into the Western financial world. And one of the one of the most um, common uh, vehicles for this, uh, destinations for this money is real estate. And that's one reason you're seeing London becoming such a, I mean, this has long been known about London, that it's become sort of an investment vehicle where entire, you know, block, city blocks practically are being bought with this kind of money. Same thing in New York, same thing in Miami. Um, and then that's a great investment that's safe, you know, it's protected by a strong, you know, rule of law system. And if uh, the regulators and the banks and real estate people and everyone else turns a blind eye to the origin of the money, you're essentially enabling the looting of these countries by their most powerful people at the expense of their vulnerable people and allowing them to take advantage of the Western financial system for their benefit. And that's something we always try to highlight. Part three, back to Russia. The International Credit Bureau has a great deal in common with another credit organization, the Moscow Mortgage Company. MZK. In the fall of 2016, videos of staff meetings appeared on YouTube where employees were told how to explain to clients the need to sign over their apartments as collateral and how clients should be given incomplete copies of their loan agreements. Though the Moscow Mortgage Company wasn't mentioned in these videos, the company later got a court order to have the footage blocked in Russia. 
The identity of the staff member leading the seminar isn't clear in the video either, but several MZK clients told Medusa that they believe it's Nikolai Chigarev, the company's deputy general director. In 2015, both MKB and MZK started appearing frequently in the media, as the number of cheated clients grew large enough to cause a public scandal. The two businesses filed defamation lawsuits, which they lost in case after case. In November 2015, MZK's ownership was transferred to the offshore company Lordena Ventures, which was registered in the British Virgin Islands. Lordena Ventures appears in OCCRP's famous Panama Papers investigation. According to those documents, it had an office in Latvia located in the Riedemu Bank building in Riga. Oksana Utenkova, an employee at the bank, was listed as the company's representative. Journalists have discovered that Utenkova was listed as the representative of more than 500 offshore companies. All were registered at the same building. One of these companies, moreover, is implicated in corrupt practices between the Swedish division of the engineering corporation Bombardier and the state officials in Azerbaijan. Following OCCRP's reporting, Riedemu blocked the accounts belonging to the suspicious companies and announced that Oksana Utenkova no longer works at the bank. A woman named Elena Kulneva was one of the people cheated by Guselnikov, Alekseev, and Krasnevsky. She borrowed money from MZK, signing an acquisition agreement on her apartment and its subsequent lease with Sergei Malikov. Kulneva lost a civil suit to invalidate the contract, but she was recognized as a victim in the felony fraud case. In March 2019, Moscow's Tverskoy District Court jailed four people working at two microfinance institutions, Moscow Group and Parnas, that issued home equity loans. Like Guselnikov, Olesya Sukharova was involved in contracts tied to MKB and MZK. Sukharova pleaded innocent in court, stating that she was only a witness to the transfer of money. In the microfinance industry, people like Sukharova act as brokers who seek out customers and guide them until a deal is reached. One method Guselnikov used to attract business was the company Your Broker, which he co-founded with a woman named Lumila Timshova. In 2017, following criminal charges against Guselnikov, she withdrew from the company's founders and Your Broker rebranded itself as Pravoaktiv. It now offers bank and MFO debt relief services. Part 4. How these microcredit organizations are intertwined. The average lifespan of a microfinance institution that issues home equity loans is about 18 months. Buying a turnkey microfinance company already registered with Russia's central bank costs anywhere between $2,100 to $3,900. On specialized internet forums, you can find numerous listings for ready-made MFOs. These companies change their names while maintaining the same staff, holders, and private investors. The company Loan Center 365, where Natalia Smilnitskaya borrowed money, was created in February 2016 by Anna Sukhanova. Sukhanova is the founder of 21 such microfinance companies. Medusa found four sale listings for several of these firms online. A few months after Loan Center 365's creation, the firm was transferred to Anton Velichko and Latvian national Yulia Kalinina. Smilnitskaya signed contract number four, making her one of Loan Center 365's first customers. According to Medusa's findings, 
the company entered into at least 67 loan agreements between the summer of 2016 and February 2018. Reviewing registration records, Medusa discovered that 25 of 37 loan center clients sold their property soon after receiving their loans. In 15 cases, the homes were sold directly to Loan Center 365. Part 5. A Law Against Evictors In early May 2019, a job posting appeared on the website Headhunter for the position of evictor. The starting monthly salary topped at $2,500 a month. The job duties read, collecting overdue debts on home equity loans and organizing the eviction of debtors from the mortgaged real estate. The ad was posted by the microfinance company Brighton Plus, which calls itself one of the leaders in Russia's home equity loan market. Brighton Plus says it issues loans worth $1.5 million every month, made possible by vigorous investor financial support. According to Russia's Unified State Register of Legal Entities, the company is owned by four people, most of whom have no business experience. Experts argue that microfinance institutions have been able to swindle borrowers out of their homes so often because the industry is underregulated. Maxim Tudorlubov says, it's not just the lack of regulations on lenders. Many would-be borrowers lack financial education. You know, you have to have all these big signs everywhere saying that never, never trust these people who say that we'll give you cash quick for no nothing. Alarm bells should ring immediately. So it, you, you just need a campaign probably to explain this. But the situation seems to be changing. In April 2019, lawmakers in the state Duma introduced draft legislation that would ban microfinance institutions from issuing home equity loans. Technically, this bill would amend Russia's existing law against the laundering of illegally obtained income and financing terrorism, and regulations on microfinance activities and microfinance institutions. Judging by the legislation's co-authors, which include the speakers of both houses of parliament, Vacheslav Volodin and Valentina Matvidenko, the bill has a good chance of passing. The Evictors was written by Ivan Golunov, edited by Alexei Kavalyov, and translated by Kevin Rothrock. Sarah Passerini and Sean Guillory did the audio narration. Audio production was by Sean Guillory. Music by Kevin McLean. Thanks to Maxim Tudlubov, Ilya Lazovsky, Medusa, Max Gleiter, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. <laughs>